Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta, and here's what's coming up on our show today. Restaurant closings, and is this the end of free dining? Some changes to the Magic Kingdom Fast Pass lineup, and the first hints about where Disney Cruise Line's new ships might be based. But before we start the show, just a quick reminder, if you like this show, Jim and I have more exclusive shows over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Most of these have never appeared on iTunes, uh, and they include hours-long stories about everything from Disney in the 1964 World's Fair to attractions and theme parks Disney never built to Jim and I walking around the parks talking about their history. Check them out at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. And speaking of history, this week in 1983, Disney's Night of Joy begins a 35-year run at the Magic Kingdom. The first headline act was Leon Patillo. Future acts include the incomparable Shirley Caesar, Debbie Boone, Amy Grant, Andre Crouch, and of course, the rock band Striper. Speaking of black and yellow spandex pants, let's bring in the man who's legally prohibited from wearing them. One Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I really protest that because again, <laughs> it's like Flight of the Bumblebee. <laughs> I actually had to look up as I was, I was going through the, uh, the Night of Joy history. My literally first thing that popped into my mind was I wonder if Striper ever played this. And of course they did twice. Uh, so I was, I was pretty pleased to uh, find that out. I guess for me, I'm intrigued after making all of the effort to move it over to reinvent the event as something you could hold at the ESPN wide world of sports. Yeah. And then to ditch it. It's like, it's like saying, I'm going to, I'm going to move from a condo to a house. I'm going to buy all new furniture and then walk away from it the next year. Yeah. There's a, it. there's a story there, Jim. There is. So we should poke at it. All right, Jim, so let's talk about restaurant closings here. We had talked about this rumor a couple episodes ago, but now Disney has confirmed it. Artist Point at the Wilderness Lodge is closing. Uh, I believe November 10th is the last day it's serving meals. It's going to become a Snow White character dinner. What do you make of this, James? When you think about the way Artist Point has been positioned forever. A signature restaurant. It's a, del it's the, a signature restaurant in a deluxe resort, yeah. Yeah, to go this route, to opt to make it a character breakfast. I mean, it, how many times have you been in this space? I mean, it's got that deliberate old world. I mean, and when I say old world, I mean the national parks from the 1800s or 1880s or thereabouts. I mean, it had that wonderful feel. And to go this route with character dining? What I heard was this. Arts Point's a signature restaurant. Obviously, it's a, they've spent a lot of money on the Wilderness Lodge. What I heard the reason was, though, they simply weren't hitting their revenue targets. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's because it's not on the monorail or it was the menu choices. So, you know, that they had sort of the standard things that they had uh, served for years or if it was something else. But they weren't hitting their revenue targets. Disney looked at that and said, okay, the easiest way to hit our revenue targets is character meal. Let's bring in a character meal. I'm a little bit surprised they didn't try a chef change or a complete revamp of the menu. I mean, this is sort of like path of least resistance to me to do character dinner. And the other thing that puzzles me is that when you think about the uh, Roaring Fork, like you've got downstairs. Yeah, you Roaring the, Forks. You've got Whispering Canyon. Well, that, I mean, you've, got a, you've got a couple of. And you've got Geyser Point. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of of options if you if you don't want sit down mm -hmm. dinner. And Whispering Canyon, to my way of thinking, is already a very family-friendly dining venue. But that's why it was a let's let's increase the revenue, not let's bring in a character meal thing. If it was let's bring in a character meal mm -hmm. to see how that works, they would have done it at Whispering Canyon. But yeah. this wasn't people are requesting character meals at Wilderness Lodge. This was mm -hmm. 
we're not making money at this particular location. How do we change this particular location? Well, I'm just going to be fascinated to see what turns up at property control when they change this out for character dining, you know, all of those giant paintings have to go, don't they? Or Oh yeah, I mean if you're if you're a fan of Pacific Northwest art or, you know, Hudson River Valley school stuff, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that you could uh, you could pull out from there. They they might just keep it for the rest of the resort though. Hmm. Sort of oh. rotate things in or, in or out. I'm a little troubled by two things. One, this is yet another deluxe resort without a signature restaurant, the Polynesian being the other one. Mm-hmm. I don't like that as a trend. I mean, the Poly has a number of good restaurants. So I'm not overly concerned about about the Poly, and it's still my favorite resort. I'm not overly concerned about the Poly not having a true signature restaurant. The fact that there are two deluxes without a signature restaurant is of some concern to me. I don't like that trend. Working the math here, if you go to your standard character dining setup, you mm-hmm. have four characters, five characters working. Well, here's going to be eight, but yeah. On the back of watching those hour-long lines where Miggy's not so scary will actually offer a photo op where you can get Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and you get your picture taken with all of them. Right. And, and during the first Not So Scary Halloween party a couple weeks ago, the line for that was two and a half hours long, like at 8 p.m. Basically, you're spending the rest of your night in line to get an autograph and a photo for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I, I get the the appeal of those characters to this generation, right? It's a rare set of characters. Right. Seven Dwarfs Mind Train came out. It's super popular. I get that. Yeah, I don't know how you're going to have it eight Maybe it'll be like Gladys Knight and the Pips. It'll be Snow White and four of the dwarves on any given night. Compared to what people will be paying to get in there, and it'll be money hand over fist. So if they have to have eight cast members and number reserved backstage to rotate folks in, they'll do it. Yeah. I'm thinking that they do four dwarves and they just put different shirts on them and rotate them out. And like, can you really tell the difference between Bashful and sneezy if you had to i mean could you pick them out of a lineup maybe maybe not to be honest it, it's kind of based on what bashful has been charged with <laughs> exactly yeah so anyway the other thing i've heard about this is they're starting off with just a dinner if that is successful they will expand to a breakfast and then eventually to a lunch that's sort of the standard progression of how these things spread so we'll see what happens there no word on when it's going to reopen uh, i think they are going to get a retheming as well somehow they're going to have to fit german forest into Pacific Northwest, uh, I'm sure they'll do it. Okay. The other thing I want to talk about, James, uh, the other news out of dining, uh, Mickey's Backyard Barbecue closes December 31st, 2018. Remember, we had talked about this being the site of uh, new DVC development over at Fort Wilderness. This looks to be true now. Mickey's Backyard Barbecue, of course, is super close to where this construction is going to happen, so there's no way for it to run during the construction. I have heard it will come back once the new resort has opened, but this is all sort of in line with what we expect around new resort over at Fort Wilderness, right? Yeah. I just, anyone who's ever been to Mickey's Backyard Barbecue, the term looked temporary doesn't even begin. I mean, you know, what, picnic tables and... <laughs> it was the very definition of summer camp musical. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 something that you could put up an I-95 rest area if you had to. I mean, this is, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. I like some of the architecture of I-95 rest areas. Some of them are very nice. It never looked all that permanent, except for maybe the one area around the greeting area and where they've got some of the infrastructure for drinks and stuff like that. Other than that, it all looked like a backyard barbecue, and like it should. Absolutely. And back in the, the early 90s, when I used to work with the All-American High School Band Outfit, that with stage competitions, part of their sort of rotation of things that they would do 
is one night. The whole group would be down here having the backyard barbecue and interaction with the characters, and it's a fun venue, and I'm sad to see it go for the DVC. I'm glad to hear it'll pop up somewhere else. Yeah, it'll be back. Well, cool. All right. I think this could uh, this could actually be something, something that happens at one of the value resorts, or the moderates even. So if you do like Mickey's Backyard Beach Barbecue over at the mm-hmm. Kirby Beach, that might be interesting. We'll see. We'll see what happens. These days, where do high school groups, where do cheerleading groups stay? I would. Be, I bet you you're, you're right. We'll see this Pop Century or, or the equivalent. Yeah, somewhere else. Not a bad idea. Speaking of dining, I was doing some research for the unofficial guide update for 2019, and I was looking at the Disney dining plan. We ask our readers for the unofficial guide and at touringplans.com. This question, uh, did you get the Disney dining plan? And if so, which which one did you get? And then we ask him a simple question, would you do it again? Interestingly, 89% of people who get the Disney dining plan say that they would get it again. And 87% of people who get the quick service dining plan say they would get it again. Those are phenomenal numbers, don't you think? I agree. 89% of people who get it say they would do it again. So when you ask them why, mm-hmm. it's not value. Mm-hmm. The number one thing that people say that they like about the dining plan is the fact that they've prepaid for the food and there are no surprises when the bill comes. Interesting. Yeah. If you've ever been traveling with somebody who's on the dining plan, they are so intent on getting their money's worth or... Oh my God. It's like dining with someone who's both vegan and kosher. Yeah. It's like, it's like let, me, let me study what I can eat here. Yes. <laughs> you go on rides and shows around the meals. The folks who've done it a number of times get so good at it. All right. How many points I can get a Mickey bar, a turkey yeah. leg or... Oh yeah, yeah. Especially when food and wine comes out and people are like, well, I'm going to save my snack because, you know, you can get this filet mignon in uh, in France is uh, is a snack credit and it's worth $12 normally. Like, mm. how much time did you spend studying the food and wine menus to know that particular thing? Because I'm thinking you could get a college degree in that amount of time, right? <laughs> did, you, did you need a master's degree in something? You could... <sighs> You could do that. Yeah, it's amazing. But I also heard uh, from someone, one of our uh, one of our readers, who said they had saved up all of their snack credits mm-hmm. until the day before they left. And as a family, they brought home 100 Disney prepackaged snacks that they would then eat over the you know next n number of weeks as a reminder of the vacation. Which I think is actually a very very clever way. That to is. do snack credits on the dining plan. I mean, 100 uh, credits, it's a long time, and so it must have been a huge family. Mm-hmm. But still, even if it's you're talking you know, six people, that's one snack a day for over two weeks. That's a really good... I would have loved to have been there for that transaction, though. I would love to see them take it, uh, checking their bags at airport security. <laughs> yeah. Ma'am, it's in this bag, it's a Rice Krispie Treats. Ma'am, this is a full-size Samsonite luggage. And your point is... <laughs> Where do you put 100 snacks? I do not know. Particularly now that suddenly it is a thing to pull out your food as you're going through. Yes, let me take out my 100 Mickey-shaped Rice Krispies treats. That's the express pass to a cavity search land, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> That's what I can't. I'm not going to do this. All right, folks, we'll be right back. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
and we're back. All right, James, speaking of a uh, uh, dining plan, uh, you know, Jim, that one of the more popular promotions that Disney offers throughout the year is its free dining promotion, typically offered in the fall, where you book a hotel at full price, uh, and Disney throws you either the standard dining plan if you're staying at a moderate or a deluxe, or the quick service dining plan if you're staying at a value resort. I hear from folks who should know Mm-hmm. That once Galaxy's Edge opens, this free dining offer goes away forever. Yeah. Is that really a surprise? It's going to be one of those things where we're, where they say, basically, we're not going to need to bring in people in the fall. The, this thing will do it for us. Mm-hmm. So that means that 2019 will likely be the last year of free dining in Walt Disney World, if this rumor is true. Have you heard about Evermore, the theme park-ish thing that's opening in Utah later this month? No. Josh Shipley, who is a a veteran Imagineer, is the chief creative officer on this thing. And it's an attempt to do Harry Potter Wizarding World, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge without a known IP. Huh. It's launching, I want to say, September 20th. But throughout the year, it'll move through these different narrative settings. For example, they're going with lore, which is kind of their Halloween-themed experience. Yeah, I'm looking at the website now. So their their opening thing is a one-night-only Victorian-themed fantasy adventure, and mm-hmm. the graphics involve pumpkins. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it looks... This is super interesting. I wanted people to put this on their radar because it's got a whole bunch of the folks who worked on Face Off who are doing character makeups. There's incredible design. But at the same time, if you look at the map, Len, this is yeah. like classic Disneyland, only writ small. Oh, yeah. It's a, it looks like a classic hub-and-spoke architecture. Mm-hmm. I admire the guts to try to do this super hyper-detailed storytelling-based event where, again, you, you walk around corners and discover different characters and narratives, but, again, without a known IP. Oh. Not having J.K. Rowling in your your back pocket or, or the characters of George Lucas to do it all on your own. I'd love to hear if, if any folks are actually going to check this out. It's in Utah. It's in Utah, which, you know, again, a hotbed for themed entertainment, Len. Here's, here's my thinking. It was my, literally the first thing I thought of this, and I, I wish them all the success in the world. Mm-hmm. God forbid it fails. But if it does fail, Jim, 20 yep. years from now, mm-hmm. we're going to do the horror movie where a bunch of teenage <laughs> kids are trapped in an abandoned theme park in the woods in Utah, right? And we're going to call the movie Evermore, right? <laughs> Someone get Steven Spielberg on the line right now because we're doing this. <laughs> I'm, writing, I'm writing the treatment as we speak. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, Len, sometime in the next two to three weeks, a movie with this exact same, it's set at a theme park that's having of the equivalent of a Halloween Horror Night event. Only. Somebody's already thought of my idea? But Damn there's it. a slasher wandering through this event, and you know, and they're trying to convince the theme park employees. You know, the severed head I'm holding in my hand, it's my friend from high school. And maybe <laughs> we should, could we talk to security? You know, it's like, shut up, get in line. Where's your express pass? <laughs> I'm sorry, Lynn. Maybe you can do the first-person shooter version. I am late to this party, but the script writes itself. But anyway, all right, so, so to slide back to... Um, Dining free plan. dining going away once Galaxy's Edge opens. So 2019 could possibly be the last year of free dining. Okay, but you know, again, let's remember, this is the Disney company. And, and how many people have light bulbs at home because the Main Street Electrical Parade was going away forever? Forever with the Walt Disney Company. Did I say forever? I meant two weeks. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, forever has a uh, has a more limited meaning for uh, for Disney than, uh, than that. 
That it does. Uh, so, so it's possible they could bring it back in a couple of years, the mm-hmm. return of free dining, and the, everyone will go crazy for it. That's that's actually a good idea. So it may not be offered for a couple of years after Galaxy's Edge opens. All right, we'll see. Okay. Speaking of theme park lineups, something curious going on in my Disney experience right now, Jim. Mm-hmm. If you look out at FastPass availability for Magic Kingdom attractions, starting around the middle of October and going out as far as you can see into November, two attractions no longer have FastPasses available in Magic Kingdom. Those are Mickey's PhilharMagic and Monster's Laugh Floor. Now, they're not closing because you can see the operating hours for each attraction in my Disney experience. But if you look in MDE, it'll also say our allocation of Fast Passes is done for the day for these two attractions. What do you think is going on here? They made Fast Passes available. So people, again, who were planning out their day could, you know, oh, well, our guy can't get Space Mountain, I can't get Big Thunder, but I can get us into Maggie's Floor Magic. Then you you enter the theater and we're like, why did I waste a fast pass in, in this right. giant people eating? And, and in both cases, what, you know, that we're talking Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor has a capacity of at least three to 400, doesn't it? And Yeah, it means for a wait to be more than 20 minutes there. And I think most of the time you're going to get, you're going to get in either to the current show or the next show, you know. You're not going to have to wait more than one show to get in. I have heard there is some discussion of updating Mickey's PhilharMagic for the 50th anniversary of Mm. Walt Disney World. This is a show that's basically a film. So, well, we can take that out of the system for a while. And, you know, when there's a new film that features scenes from Tangled and God help us, Frozen, Mm. then it's like, okay, maybe it could come back into the system. And Laugh Floor, there is still this talk. Bob Chapek is is very into the notion of what is Laugh Floor doing in Tomorrowland? But we've said this for a while. Tomorrowland is basically the catch-all for properties Mm -hmm. that don't fit anywhere else in the Magic Kingdom. Tron, I can see in Tomorrowland. Monsters, Laugh Floor should have gone to the studios. And that evidently long term is the plan. So they, they can figure out here, you know, if Monsters, Laugh Floor, if these two attractions can run without Fast Pass, mm-hmm. it's good because they don't need to offer it for Fast Pass. They get higher guest satisfaction from people who are using Fast Pass on other attractions. And then long term, they can look at moving Monsters, Laugh Floor to another park. That makes sense. Yeah. All right, Jim, uh, have you been uh, keeping up on the news around the Disney Cruise Line? We're talking about new boats, aren't we? There are three new boats Disney's announced coming out in 2021, 2022, and 2023. Mm -hmm. But there are a number of questions that these three new boats have risen. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them is, where are they going to be based and where are they going to go? Now we have some information on that. So this is uh, credited to Scott Sanders over at the DCL blog. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Scott, for providing this information. He's done fantastic detective work here. Um, But basically, this is it. Port Canaveral mm-hmm. now has documents saying that Disney is going to base at least two ships powered by liquid natural gas mm-hmm. at Port Canaveral. Now, their current ships, of the four that they have, none of them are powered by liquid natural gas. But we know that th- at least two of the three new ships are. So that means two of the new ships are going to be based at Port Canaveral year-round. The next question you would have, though, is that that would make six ships that are at Port Canaveral at one point or another where are all these ships going to go and what are they going to do? And especially when you consider things like Castaway Key and the current schedule, there isn't enough capacity at Castaway Key for Disney to dock six ships there throughout the week. Have you seen the proposal that Disney has now floated to the government of the Bahamas, though? For Lighthouse Point, this is a 700-acre beach 
in the island of Utheria. We knew they were island shopping, but this is interesting. All right. Well, for a couple of reasons, it's interesting. One is it's not a standalone island. Mm-hmm. It is uh, 700 acres at the bottom of the island of Eleutheria. Mm-hmm. Eleuthera? I don't know. Anyway, 700 acres. A couple of interesting points about it. Number one, it would have its own private dock. So Disney has offered to build its own private dock. But number two, this particular part of the Bahamas is interesting because, Jim, it's 50 feet above sea level. I remember we had talked about yeah. the lease that Disney has with Castaway Key, mm-hmm. uh, which runs through the end of uh, almost to the year 2100, so 2097, I believe. If you look at how global warming is affecting sea levels, the most pessimistic projections for ocean level rising puts Castaway Key underwater by the time Disney's lease is up. And that also means that in the next you know 20 years or so, maybe 30 years, even sea rises of half that much would severely damage Castaway Key's operation because it's only six feet above sea level. If you talk about it, even a three-foot rise or even a two-foot rise you know, with storm surges and whatnot, you could start to see large parts of the island become unusable for Castaway Key. But at 50, uh, more than 50 feet above sea level, this prevents that problem for at least a couple hundred years. So if Disney's looking to make, again, another hundred-year investment mm-hmm. in the Bahamas, this is the kind of thing that they're looking for. That makes sense, right? No, perfectly. At one point, they were talking about Egg Island, I want to say. that they, Egg Island they, was one. And then they, um, so they looked to develop that, but they got some pushback from the Bahamian government and I think for, uh, for locals on it as well. Mm-hmm. And they're getting the same thing here, by the way, too. The feedback that they're getting from the Bahamian, not the government necessarily, but from the community is there's been enough development in the Bahamas for cruise ships. This is typically a one-way investment where cruise companies provide a limited number of jobs, a few low million dollars in investment, but they reap the bulk of the rewards. And what these activists are saying is that there needs to be more sharing between the uh, the government and the citizens and the, the cruise operators. So it's definitely not the slam dunk that I guess that it was back in the 90s when the, the Bahamian government and the um, citizens were, uh, were really eager to see Disney come in. Now they're trying to quantify exactly what sort of economic benefit they're going to get and then what it's going to mean for the community. Because again, 700 acres in the Caribbean is still valuable real estate. They're not making much of it anymore. No. Uh, I, I see their point. Yeah. yeah. Circling back to Port Canaveral, these mm-hmm. are far bigger ships, right? Well, they're still dream class ships. They're mm-hmm. about the same size, mm-hmm. slightly bigger. We still don't know how they're going to be configured. And I think that's like the, the really the big unknown. Mm-hmm. If you look at the cruise trends, cruise ship trends, um, lately, uh, the one thing that Disney doesn't have that most large ships have are, mm. are suites. So Royal's got you know 16 different levels of one bedroom, two bedroom suites, and so on. Disney really doesn't have any of that in any of their ships. So that's one thing. The other thing is if you look at the number of restaurants that are available on Disney ships, it pales in comparison to the number at Royal Caribbean or, or any other place. So the big question is whether Disney is going to sacrifice some space either in cabins or in public spaces. Mm-hmm. for more things like suites and restaurants. Does this mean reconfiguring the physical plant of the Disney Cruise Line, the entrance-exit complex that they have Right. There? They've permanently got one terminal there, and I think they've mm-hmm. got part-time access to another terminal. Mm-hmm. But I think if they add other ships at Port Canaveral, they will need more access at a second terminal. And the question is, is like, how do you unify the operations there? Mm-hmm. You know, because you, you, want, you want to make sure that there's one set of signs and one location for all the Disney cruises. Because if you have two sets of signs, in two sets of locations, invariably someone's going to go to the wrong place for the cruise and you don't want that to happen. 
But the other interesting thing that Scott pointed out was this. Disney started talking to the port of Miami now mm-hmm. about doing year-round cruises out of Miami. So one of the, and they've said specifically, one of the dream class ships, mm-hmm. so not the Magic and not the Wonder, that like to go to Miami year-round. And if you look at the transportation developments in Orlando, you know they're working on the um, the Brightline train mm-hmm. now between Orlando and Miami. It's supposed to, I think construction's either started this year or it's supposed to start this year. Mm-hmm. But by 2021, which again is the time the first boat comes online, mm-hmm. you should have a three-hour train ride from Disney World in Orlando to the Port of Miami. Okay, that's an interesting wrinkle. Miami already has a, a very strong international tourism base. Make perfect sense to put a Disney cruise down there. Yep. Three-hour train ride down there versus, what is the, the drive over to Port Canaveral from Disney property? It's like an hour-ish, hour, hour 15 without uh, traffic or accidents. God forbid there's an accident on that uh, one road because it's basically two lanes yeah the last half hour or so and if you get to, if you get stuck there 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 is literally no other route mm-hmm. to the coast so you know hour hour and 15 plan on two hours if you're paranoid about it kudos to scott for chasing all this stuff down the other thing that scott pointed out is that i don't think disney yet knows what they're going to do with the magic and wonder full time mm-hmm. so you tend to see a lot more test itineraries mm-hmm. for those two ships so you know the the magic is going out of new york to canada it does its regular stuff to the north, northern Europe and to the Mediterranean. I expect them to start testing, you know, more sort of California West Coast itineraries, maybe more uh, during more seasons for the wonder and things like that. But definitely, you might definitely see in like 2020 more experimental itineraries. And Disney tries to figure out where all of these ships are going to go and where they're going to be based throughout the year. Because I don't think they're going to be able to put seven ships in Florida for a year. I think that's too much, especially at the prices they're charging. No, I agree. When you have an asset of this size that you can take to different markets, it just makes sense. Let's try some different opportunities here and see what sticks. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing uh, seeing the Magic do more transatlantic crossings going back and forth, maybe from like New York to London mm-hmm. would be interesting or New York to Barcelona would be fun, something like that. I agree. Yeah, anyway, thanks, Scott, for the uh, for the tip. It was very good. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today. You've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go on to iTunes or Stitcher or your local community cable broadcast station and write us a review and tell us what you'd like to hear next. Don't forget, we are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. So for Aaron and Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. <laughs>